Today we're launching a new series, and our energy in this new series is going to be focused around this mysterious, profound, essential reality that in a manger in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, God showed up in a surprising, unique, and remarkable way, a way that had never happened to that point and hasn't happened again since that point. What happens when God shows up in the flesh of Jesus of Nazareth? Now, in asking that question, we have to recognize that we're jumping in to the story somewhere in the middle, aren't we? The Gospel of John isn't normally thought of as a Christmas gospel, is it? We don't typically read the first chapter of John at Christmas time. But that's what's going on, isn't it? This is John's version of Jesus' birth. The Word became flesh. And John wants us to remember that we're not jumping in at the beginning of the story. We're jumping in in the middle. That's why he starts off with this in-the-beginning language reminding us that this is happening. What, we're, what I'm about to say th- about Jesus, he, he hints, is part of a bigger story. And that story starts in Genesis. So he quotes Genesis. In the beginning was the Word. And if you're even remotely familiar with the Old Testament, you know those opening words of Genesis. In the beginning, God. So if we start reading the story at the beginning in Genesis, we notice some things very quickly. And one of the things that we notice is that God designed his human creatures for deep fellowship with himself. Right? He forms human beings, Adam and Eve, and puts them in a garden. And that garden is the place of his presence. And they have fellowship with him. They can hear him coming when he's coming along, and they can talk to him, and there's just this unfettered, unhindered, deep fellowship that they have with their creator. But very quickly, very quickly, that relationship is broken, isn't it? And it's broken when those human creatures who represent God in the world, who bear his image, who are responsible for Caring, caring for the world and ordering it on God's behalf. When they decide God won't be God of the world, they will be, a rift opens up in their relationship with their maker. When they take that piece of fruit, whatever it was, and say, God, you're not going to be God in this place. We will be. You won't be Lord over us. We'll call the shots in our life. We'll determine what's right and wrong in this garden and really in this world. And that created a brokenness in that relationship between the Creator and His creatures. And all of us, all of us feel the weight of the rift when we're being honest with ourselves and each other. We were made for God's presence, but our rebellion creates distance. So 
so that we don't experience God's presence the way we long to. That tension, that difficulty is captured in so many places in the Bible, but it's captured particularly well in the story of the Exodus. We get through Genesis, we make our way to the book of Exodus. The people of God, Abraham's family, is in slavery, and God delivers them miraculously. You're familiar with the stories, the Red Sea, the plagues, those kinds of things. And they get to Mount Sinai, and Moses goes up onto Mount Sinai, and at one point he declares, God, let me see your glory, let me see your face. And God says to him, no one can see me and live. No one can lay eyes upon me and live. No one can see my face. God kind of compromises a little bit. Puts Moses in a spot and lets his glory pass before him so you can kind of see God from the backside. But there's something about God's face and something about the broken relationship that humanity has with God that all of a sudden his presence has become dangerous. All of a sudden, his presence has become dangerous. There's something about the light of his face that it overwhelms the darkness in our hearts. Something about the holiness of his glory that isn't safe for broken, sinful, rebellious people. And so he holds off, revealing his face for a time. John has all of that in the background when he begins to write the opening chapter of his gospel. In the beginning was the Word. John understands that humanity is so far from God, that the distance is so great, that we don't have what it takes to overcome in ourselves. He understands that we were made for deep fellowship with God, and that that deep fellowship has been broken. And he understands that Jesus came in the flesh. Babe of Bethlehem. The manger, nativity, all of the things that go with that. John understands that Jesus came to restore that broken relationship. We could put it this way for John. Jesus came in the flesh so that we can know God face to face. I wonder if we can hang on to that. Jesus came in the flesh with a human face so that we can know God face to face. Now, when John starts his gospel, he presupposes all that brokenness that we've been talking about. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not overcome it. And there's this sense of conflict, really. Darkness is trying to overcome whatever it is that God is trying to do in Jesus. And then in verse 10, John says, Jesus, the Word made flesh, is in the world. The world came into being through Him. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But the world didn't know Him. The world didn't know its Creator. There's a distance there, that gap, that, that, that distance between us and our maker is so great that we don't even know him when he shows up and walks around in front of us. He was in the world, the world came into being through him, yet the world did not know him. And if that doesn't make the point, verse 11 is there. He came to what was his own and his own people did not accept him. So John just wants 
to take that broken relationship between God, the Creator, and His created human beings made in His image, and He amplifies the seriousness, to help us get an idea of the seriousness of the distance between us and God. For John, Jesus comes to begin healing that distance. And Jesus is able to heal that distance because Jesus, uniquely, unlike anyone else in the history of anything, uniquely participates in the divine being. He's God and human being. He's a human. He's one of us. And that's captured in this verse 14. The Word became flesh and lived among us. What does that mean? How does that work? What's going on in John's mind here? How does he conceive of the relationship between Jesus, who he calls the Word, and God the Father, the Creator? How does he understand that unity that they have so that Jesus can somehow bring us into relationship with God, right? Because if he's simply one of us, then he's in a mess like the rest of us and can't bring us across that massive gap into relationship with the one who made us and who loves us but who is far from us because we've rebelled against Him. So what does that look like? Well, the clue comes at the beginning. In the beginning was the Word. And we know that's not how it goes. It's supposed to be in the beginning God. But by taking out God and inserting Word, John is telling us something about who the Word is, isn't he? What's he saying? He's saying the Word made flesh is God. When you think about the Creator, the God who speaks and brings worlds and planets and suns and birds and trees and you into existence... You need to think about the Word made flesh. You need to think about Jesus. He embodies the the life and being of the Creator. They are one. They are united. And yet, John can also say they are distinct. That's what's going on in the grammar of this passage, isn't it? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. If you're an English teacher, this is for you. Notice the being verbs. The Word was God. There is essential unity. They are one. The one is the other. At the same time, though, John says something to point to the difference between the two. The Word was with God. And we just kind of read through that because we're used to it, but it's really a strange way of speaking, isn't it? I mean, imagine what you would think if the first time you met me, I came up and said, Hi, I am Matt, and I'm with Matt. You'd probably be thinking, has this guy, does he need to be having some pills to help on with the, the schizophrenia? Or maybe we need to call some medical professionals to take him off to a padded room or something. Nobody talks like that. It's kind of a split personality thing. But John doesn't think God has a split personality. John is trying to find language to commute this, communicate this deep, mysterious reality that in Israel's God, in the one being of the Creator, are multiple persons. One God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. So the Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God. But the Father is not the Son. The Father is not the Spirit. The Son is not the Father or the Spirit. And the Spirit is not the Father or the Son. So the church kind of said, you know, there's this tension going on. How do we talk about one God revealed in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? And eventually, a couple hundred years later, somebody had the bright idea of using the word Trinity. (laughs) 
And we're stuck with it now. We've got it. But it helps us get at this idea that in, in the life of God, there is essential unity and distinct persons. God is one. And yet God is revealed in persons through Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And here's why that matters. Because if it's not true, God is not love. Do I have your attention? You may be thinking, all right, we don't normally get into this much theology. It's kind of heavy, technical, Trinitarian stuff. But here's the thing, friends. If God is not like that, then God is not love. And here's why. If you're going to talk about love, you need more than one person, don't you? It doesn't make any sense to say, I love. We're all kind of sitting back waiting for the rest of the sentence, aren't we? Who? What? <laughs> finish, the, finish, finish the sentence. What's the object of your love? To have love, you need one who loves and one who is beloved, don't you? So then the question comes along, well, if God is one and God is love, in eternity past, before God makes anything, you know, let there be light, and stars, and moon, and suns, and people, before there's anything, when there's just God, who does God love? And if God is solo by himself, there's no answer to the question. And it's impossible to say, God is love, isn't it? And that's how every religion other than Christianity has to answer the question, all the, the, the religions. But for us, the answer is clear. Before God made the world, the Father loved the Son and the Spirit. Before there was any created object to be the object of God's love, and we are the objects of his love, but before he made anything, in eternity past, the Father loves the Son and the Spirit, the Son loves the Father and the Spirit, and the Spirit loves the Father and the Son. And those three persons who are essentially one but distinct in person, those three persons throughout eternity, past and into eternity, future, exist in relationship of self giving, other-oriented, passionate love. And so before anything exists, we can say, God is love. And we know what love is because love is at the heart of God's character. Because He loves us. And the way we know how to love each other is because the Trinity portrays eternal, self-giving love in its very essence. And that love motivates God to pursue rebels who had transgressed his commandments, refused to surrender to his good will, and declared that they know better than he does, even though he is all wise. That eternal, Trinitarian, perfect unfailing, unblemished, spectacularly glorious in every way. That love motivates God to send His Word become flesh with a face to reestablish our participation in His eternal Trinitarian love. And here's the thing, friends. There is nothing in existence more beautiful or glorious than the eternal love that exists between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
Let's say that again. There is nothing more beautiful than the love that exists eternally between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Nothing. And that's the love that the incarnation, when Jesus becomes one of us, that's the love to which he invites us. That most beautiful love. That most perfect love. So Jesus, who has been in a relationship of love with the Father and the Spirit for eternity, comes to us. Even though we didn't know him, even though we were resistant to him, and he offers himself so that we can become his brothers and sisters, children of his father, who are participating in that familial love, that perfect love. We've talked about who he is. Let's dig in a little more deeply to what he does. Verse 12 to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God, who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. To do that, to make that possibility a reality, verse 14, the word became flesh and lived among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. And for John, Jesus brings God to us. And he picks up this language. Remember, we're not at the beginning of the story. He picks up all this language. He's so, if you, if you love the Old Testament, this passage resonates with you. This idea of God dwelling among his people. He came and lived among us. He came and dwelt among us. Comes straight out of the Old Testament, doesn't it? Right? When God gets his people out of Egypt, what's the first thing he do? He gets them to camp. And then he puts a tent in the middle of the camp, and God moves into the tent. You remember what the tent was called? The tabernacle. And wherever the people went, the tabernacle went, and God's presence went. Eventually, that presence settled into the temple. And John is saying it. Before you went to the temple to experience the presence of God in your midst, now you go to Jesus. He's the one who brings you into that relationship of life-giving love with the Creator, with God. He had to go through the cross to do it. It's this perfect manifestation, perfect climax of his self-giving love. But he did it so that we could be brought into a face-to-face -face relationship with God. And that's the point John makes as he wraps out the passage. From his fullness, verse 16, we have all received grace upon grace. <laughs> I wonder how many of us need not just grace, but grace upon grace. Just pile it in there, you know. The law was given through Moses, and again, I mean, we, this John has Moses on the brain, doesn't he? He's, a, he's, a, he's, got, he's talking about the Old Testament, pulling it up. Jesus is the climax of that whole story. The law came through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. And that's the issue, isn't it? Not since Adam have we had someone who had this unhindered, perfect 
relationship with God. No one has seen God. No one can lay eyes on Him. It's not safe until Jesus shows up. No one has ever seen God. It is God, the only Son, who is eternally participating face-to-face in love with the Father. It is God, the only Son, who is close to the Father's heart, who has made Him known. That language of being close to the Father's heart the different translations just do it in a lot of different ways. If you're reading along, your, the, your translation may have a slightly different take on it because it's just this image. It's the image in, in the original language. It says, into the father's chest. And it's the image of a nursing mother taking a newborn baby to her chest. And it's this deeply intimate relationship. And you moms will know the first time you made eye contact with your your new baby, that there's a bond there that really doesn't compare with other relationships. And John wants us to say, wants us to realize that the relationship between the father and the son is deeper than that and bigger than that and, and closer. And there's just this, this deep, eternal bond between father and son, between the eternal creator God and Jesus. And Jesus, by virtue of that relationship to God and by virtue of becoming a human being, can bring us into renewed relationship with God. Jesus came in the flesh so we can know God face to face through Him. And how badly do we need God to take our faces and draw our eyes to His eyes? Perhaps especially in this season. We spent a lot of time this morning talking about brokenness, haven't we? We spent a lot of time talking about those places in our hearts that sometimes we, we just feel the distance. We know Jesus loves us. We know we belong to him, but there are times where we just want to say, where are you, God? Why won't you show up in this? I'm hurting here and I need you. And There's all different kinds of dynamics in place there. And those challenges, the pain really, gets amplified in the holidays, doesn't it? People experience sorrow more deeply around Christmas than they do any other time of the year. It's all joy and celebration on TV. Gifts and ribbons, trees and lights. But when we gather and someone we love isn't there, we feel the pain of that more deeply. Or when relationships are damaged, we feel the pain of that amplified. Or when we know that God has something for us and we're not living into that, something about the season, the holidays, that just make all of that more pronounced. And we need Jesus to come to us like we go to our children and take their little faces in the palms of our hands and draw their eyes to our eyes and declare, I love you. You're mine. Let me touch. Whatever that dark spot is that needs light, 
You may not understand it. Whatever that spot is, just Jesus says, let me look upon you and heal you. This isn't the end of the story either, is it? We've talked a lot about the beginning of the story. We've talked about how the manger forms the middle. This theme of face-to-face knowledge of God comes up at the end too, doesn't it? The end of Revelation. Heavenly city comes out of the sky and lands on the earth. The dwelling of home is among mortals, the text tells us. And then John, I'm sticking with John today, gets this vision of the city. And in the city, there's a garden. Really, the whole thing is a garden. And John says in verse chapter 22, the angel showed me the river of the water of life. And you can just imagine the wholeness and the healing that happens at that river. Bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, on either side of the river is the tree of life with 12 kinds of fruit. And you can imagine the nourishment and healing that comes from a tree with 12 kinds of fruit that also gives that fruit 12 times a year, he says. Because the leaves of that tree are for the healing of the nations. They are for our healing Nothing accursed will be found there anymore, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. And here is the climactic moment. Here is the moment where everything comes to its right place, where all the wrong is made right, where all the brokenness is healed, where the sin is forgiven, the transgression is restored, where the banishment from the garden is brought to its climactic healing moment, the revelation says they will see His face. You will see His face. The face of, the God, the face of God revealed in the face of the Lamb of God. And His name is Jesus. So maybe you can get a taste of what's coming today and in the days to come. And maybe you'll feel the hands of Jesus on your face more powerfully than you've ever felt it. Maybe you'll find your eyes drawn to his eyes. And that distance that's been there will get a little bit smaller. And a little bit smaller. And a little bit smaller. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ came in the flesh. 
the one who speaks and brings everything into existence, condescended to a manger. The one who reigns on the throne of heaven became an infant with all of the weakness and vulnerability so that you could know God face to face. So the invitation is to consider the things that hinder that new, deeper relationship. What are the things that keep us from knowing the Lord in that deep way? We're going to come in a moment and break bread together. We're going to hear the Lord Jesus say, this is my body and this is my blood. And I'm wondering if as we eat the bread and as we taste the juice of the cup, if we can just leave those things that hinder our face-to-face -face relationship with Jesus, I wonder if we can just leave them here. So if the Lord is at work in your heart, and I hope he is, when you break the bread and dip it in the cup and you taste it, give thanks. Christ has come in the flesh so that you can know him, receive him, participate in his love. So that you can know God as God intended to be known. And so that you can be known by him. He desires to know you.